Greetings. Welcome to another episode of Bear Talk. I'm David Bear, and today I'll be talking about hunting. Hunting, of course, is something that you do, but it's also something you can think about. So my guests today are Bracey Hill, who is the editor of a book titled God, Nimrod, and the World, Exploring Christian Perspectives on Hunting, and Jeremy Sturm, who has a PhD in theology from Baylor University, and who is currently serving as a military chaplain. Bracey and Jeremy are both hunters themselves, and I invited them on the podcast to share their thoughts about how Christians should think about hunting. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay, so uh, Bracey Hill and Jeremy Sturm, I want to thank you guys both for uh, coming on my podcast, and I'll, I'll let you just introduce yourself quickly to the audience. Bracey, okay. why don't you go ahead? Okay. Uh, hi, I'm Bracey Hill, and I'm happy to be here. Jeremy. Hey, David. Thank you uh, for inviting me. I'm, I'm Jeremy Sturm and uh, glad to be here. David, as well. All right, thank you guys for coming on my podcast. And so uh, we're going to talk about hunting. Uh, I guess both of you guys, both of you guys have some, you know, have, well, it sounds like Bracey's like really into hunting and Jeremy is uh, kind of like a normal hunter. Right? So I, I'll uh, maybe just say a little bit about, you know, your background in, in, in hunting, but just a little bit, but, but uh, Jeremy, why don't you go first? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I am not a, a, what you would consider a real avid hunter, but I mean, I am a, a deer, a deer hunter mostly. Um, you know, I grew up, uh, went hunting with my father, uh, when I was younger. And then of course now I'm, I'm a father and, uh, take my uh, teenage son, uh, out, like I said, mostly deer hunting. Um, we do some fishing as well, uh, but primarily de uh, deer hunting and, uh, we have one duck hunt under our belt um, out at the uh, at the Bracy Ranch. So, but yeah, we I, I do hunt. I support hunting, and uh, you know I think it's uh, I think it's a good thing. So okay, good. so let's say you hunt, and Bracy, I guess uh, you you are you're the avid hunter. You have a ranch or something like that. So just say a little bit about your uh, your own background in hunting. Uh, yeah, I grew up uh, the son of a relatively poor minister, which meant that we didn't hunt as hunting required to get, to get quite a bit of money and land access. So I grew up mostly fishing uh, with some familiarity with firearms since I was a child. Uh, it wasn't until I actually, uh, I was in college uh, that I began to kind of do a little hunting on land that my father got access to from some of his own students. He was a college professor at that time. And uh, I got a chance to start hunting again when I was in Indiana after doing graduate work up there, I was a school teacher. And um, people out of the kindness of their heart allowed me access to the land. And I began a kind of path, a journey through teaching myself really how to, how to hunt and to adding more and more species to my, my uh, both my, my hunting repertoire, but also to our diet. And uh, so my wife and I, she's from Alaska, uh, take hunting very seriously. It's one of those things that is essential both to our life way and uh, to our diet, uh, since the year 2000, we've not bought anything other than chicken occasionally. And even that we phased out. And so we live off the meat that we take. And that includes a variety of, of uh, various types of cervids, deer-like animals, to birds, to pigs, to turkeys, uh, anything we can, which we process and we live off of throughout the year. So you, you, you basically just 
supply your own meat. You haven't bought meat since uh, 2000. We do. That's right. Yeah. Uh, in the year 2000 was the last time we bought meat uh, and we process all our own food. We, we have a very, very small, modest home. Uh, but part of when we built it was to design a relatively large island in the kitchen and we can put two animals on it, do the processing, the butchering, and uh, my wife can grind any meat at the end. And we have two freezers that we, we live off of. So I admit occasionally there's a frozen pizza that makes it into our diet. Uh, but other than that, uh, and we eat almost extensively stuff that we so you Like so you make your own sausages and things like that too? You know, we don't. Uh, my wife's not a big fan of it. That's the reason we don't. Uh, we can uh, make pan sausage, but we don't do uh, link sausage. Just yeah. something not a big fan of. But yeah, so we, we cut steaks. We make ground meat. We we just do everything essentially but sausage. Uh, and, yeah. and because you sent this email and so don't take offense. I mean, you said that you like you um, hunt squirrels and you eat squirrels. And I, I associate that with the. Uh, uh, that doesn't sound very appetizing to me. So what's the deal with the, with the squirrels? Squirrels are delicious. Uh, I don't know. Jeremy, what does a squirrel taste like? Um, so, so let me put the, Jeremy, have you eaten squirrel? I have, but it's been a long time. Okay. Um, so squirrels, an interesting meat um, compared to, let's say rabbit, if you've consumed rabbit. Which yeah. Is, I don't like rabbit either, actually. So, oh, well, okay. so I'm well, not the right guy. To, but anyway, go ahead. All right. So, uh, but I'll say that, for instance, my wife prefers squirrel to rabbit. The difference is the texture of meat as well as the flavor. Squirrel is a very tight meat. In other words, uh, let's say, for instance, you're eating the hindquarters, which is where the majority of the meat is on a squirrel. It is velvety, um, very little, there's hardly any fat at all in, on a squirrel, except in the abdominal area inside the cavity. It's extraordinarily lean. It's super tight, tight, tight uh, meat grain. And uh, it's, it's delicious. It's not an, a, a strong meat, although the closest thing I could say that it's akin to would be maybe the dark meat on, not in texture, but in taste, dark meat of chicken. Um, uh, I would really? say the dark, okay. dark, dark meat of wild turkey would be too strong a comparison. Um, but barbecue it, um, simply smoke it whole. It looks a bit like a rat, but smoke it whole. Or uh, we like to make gumbo or so, squirrel and, and dumplings. And how do you hunt the squirrel? Do you use a pellet gun or what do you, how do you, how do you hunt a squirrel? Uh, well, you, you see, you see, uh, in Texas, the traditional uh, method is to use a 22 rifle. In uh, <laughs> okay. the North. <laughs> When I hunted uh -huh. in the north, a lot of people would use, and I would use as well, I would use a shotgun. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. Well, I've okay, done I'll keep that in mind. Too. I'll keep that in mind if someone offers me this uh, squirrel. I, Have you done it with a bow, too? Bro? I've done it with a bow. You've done it with a bow? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. So let's think a little bit about, uh, so you guys are both, um, I don't hunt. I fished uh, when I was younger. Uh, yeah, I haven't done anything. Uh, I haven't fished in uh, a long time and but so I, I never did it even when i had my sons grown up and he wanted to go i just never got around into it go, doing it again uh but so i'm not a hunter all, except, except for fishing that that's uh that would be my my only experience with uh, whatever killing animals and eating them so or i guess a fish is an animal right so uh <laughs> so all right but let's let's think a little bit about um 
uh, about hunting then and try to get at what some of the issues might be, the moral issues might be about hunting. And, and if there's a really a sort of a Christian position or there's ways that Christians ought to think about the, the issue of hunting. And so I thought maybe I'd just start uh, because Bracey, you've, you've, you've edited this book. I've got it here. God, Nimrod and the world. It's a long book with a lot of collection, uh, coll- a large collection of different kinds of essays that are pretty interesting about hunting. So I'll, I, I'll just start maybe uh, with uh, Bracey, maybe just give me, you have kind of have a definition of hunting that you, that you uh, put forward in that book. So maybe just, let's just start with how you would define hunting and then let's see, if we can think through just identify the kinds of issues maybe that we should be thinking about. Right. Well, you know, I chose the title and the title itself to me implies the various components that we're, we're dealing with. Um, so the idea of that it's a relationship, whatever this activity is for the Christian uh, involves the deity. Uh, it involves humans and a unique character I chose in the form of this person, Nimrod, which is in the Hebraic scriptures in the book of Genesis. Uh, but is also important in Western culture, particularly in British and British American culture uh, in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, And then the world, and the world meaning that it's comprised of whatever nature is. The term nature itself implies an otherness to what we are. Uh, And so anytime we use that word, it's it's a loaded term. Um, So what I consider to be hunting, and, and then we have to kind of define. Now, the title uses the word sport hunting, and I have to say that that was a reluctant choice uh, as I was trying to come up with how to express the topic matter. There are some who would prefer not to have sport at all at the front of it, um, and others who are agitating in, in the fields of ethics for recreational, because sport elicits a particular reaction, particularly from modern audiences. So if we take hunting as a bare term, hunting would mean the human pursuit of a wild animal. And the term wild implies the lack of domesticity. It implies the fact that the animal has the ability to escape. It also implies the likelihood that the animal wishes to escape or to fleet the hunter, or would uh, in most situations. Sport hunting, or let's use recreational hunting, or if you will, to non-survival hunting, would imply the idea that it is the pursuit of a wild animal, which can escape, has a pathway, and a likely uh, inclination to escape the human predator. Um, But it is for a multitude of purposes that are not limited to survival. Um, So I'm trying to set in juxtaposition survival hunting, which means it's the only food way you have or one of the very limited food ways you possibly have for the continuation of human existence, human survival of an individual or of a group versus the pursuit of an animal. Um, And that could be a passive pursuit or it could be an active pursuit, but the pursuits of an animal for food or for byproducts or for other things that might be more difficult to quantify. So you could kill an animal for food. You could kill an animal for food and fat. You could kill an animal for food and fur. You could kill an animal for a commodity. So you don't consume it. 
but you sell it to someone else for them to consume an aspect of it and exchange, uh, you return, you get some kind of return. We call those people market hunters primarily. Um, and in the, as you move into the 19th century, you get terminology that all would fit into this. You've got people who hunt for markets, so market hunters. You have sport hunters as they begin to see themselves as an emerging culture with their own kind of cultural mores. Uh, and then you have pot hunters, which was a derogatory term by sport hunters for people who hunted primarily for the consumption of the animal or the animal byproducts. So it's, but it sounds like to me, I mean, so there's a lot there, obviously, but the uh, it sounds like kind of a key thing here is this pursuit of a wild animal. Right. So this would exclude. Uh, I mean, so because obviously it's a pursuit of a wild animal and the goal is to kill the animal. Right. right. So, so, so you're excluding is that the 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 element that is that is there it may not be fulfilled but it is part of the process is the intent for the taking of life of an animal right so one can hunt and and be a very poor hunter or be unlucky or whatever and never actually consummate if you okay. will the process so but so does it matter here so i don't know if I'm, I'm just this is i don't know but so we're you're obviously going to exclude say you know your chickens right or you're going to exclude uh um i guess if you had fun like if even for pelts or you know making uh, mink coats and you're raising the minks and or, and then killing them and so so for some reason in your definition it's the it's this wild pursuit of an animal a sort of a wild animal that that's the essential to the idea of hunting. It's it, whether or not you succeed in, in your goal. Is that so? I mean, if you're concerned about killing animals in general, right, then you wouldn't want to limit it. I, I don't know if there's anything at stake in this in this limitation of the definition of hunting to the pursuit of wild animals, or there's a, a reason well, why it's important to do that. There's a significant difference, uh, particularly mm -hmm. if we're looking at, for instance, the Hebrew Christian tradition, uh, which is built off of a bunch of pastoralists and urbanites. And so if we're looking at Christians at tradition or we look outside of Christianity or the effects of it on uh, philosophy and we're looking at the taking of life, other life, the valuation of other life, then there's a huge distinction because God in the opening you know, chapters of the Pentateuch is more than happy for you to kill an animal and give it to him. Uh, but the assumption is that already built into the myth is this idea that these animals are domesticated. I have pet goats. When I go to shoot my goats, it's generally, of course, because they're ailing and they're in pain, et cetera. But, you know, I might feed that meat uh, so not to waste it to my dogs, and which is a kind of full circle. But my, those goats came right up to me. They weren't fearful of me. They were accustomed to good things, if nothing else, protection from me. So it is with the arbitrage, right? So you take this animal, and you push it into a, a gate, they begin to feel fear that the, the studies definitely attest to as they're approaching, right, uh, being killed. So they have fear, but they are bred and maintained for human consumption and therefore in most cases are exposed to human interaction and don't have the same aversion to humans as we see if I put the word wild in front of it, um, in which case, while animals may enjoy the effects of human existence, they may go out and eat corn from a farmer's cornfield, they are not tame, they're not domesticated. And thus their end is not primarily to be consumed 
butchered, et cetera, uh, and they haven't, they, haven't been, they haven't been subjected to human influence. Okay. So let me try to get Jeremy involved. Uh, who's uh, and, and let's just see then if, I, I, uh, what what might be the kinds of issues then that we would want the moral issues we'd want us if we wanted to parse out the, or in your view Jeremy what would be the moral issues that might we'd have to parse out if we wanted to think about the the, the morale or the ethics or how we're going to think about hunting ethically what what might be some of the issues you think were things to take into consideration well sure but I mean just to, to follow up okay. on Royce, I think that is an important distinction to make between domesticated versus wild animals. I mean I think there is an important distinction to be made there when you know you don't go hunt beef cattle, right? I mean that's you know that's a domesticated animal. So I think there is an important distinction there. Uh, but I mean as far as some of the moral issues, right? I mean uh, you know kind of the low hanging fruit uh, certainly with just the, the the idea of killing, right? I mean we're talking about taking the life of another living creature, right? Not another human being, but another human creature. So, I mean, just uh, the idea of, of killing uh, for some people, I think, does raise uh, a certain uh, question and an ethical uh, viability to it. Um, well, I would say as well, though, I mean, I think it's important to make the, the dis- some of the distinctions that Bracey's making, right? Because we're not talking about uh, just killing any animal in any fashion, right? There's a particular method. Uh, there's a particular ethical framework that hunters, we'll say good hunters, I guess, ethical hunters operate from, right? I mean, we're not, uh, we're not going out there with full automatic weapons trying to take down, you know, I mean, there, there's an ethical framework in which they, uh, they set about hunting. So I think it's important to make these distinctions, right? We're not just talking about going out there and killing the first thing that moves. So, I mean, do you think it's less, there are less, maybe less ethical questions raised, at least in terms of the killing aspect, I'm just asking less ethical questions raised by hunting than by killing a domesticated animal. I mean, so Bracey calls over his goat and then, you know, uh, and, you know, betrays his goat and, and, and shoots the goat or, or, or you know, I don't, and something like, I mean, maybe, or the, or the, you know, whatever, the domesticated animals are sort of used to people and the pigs and so forth. And then they, they're going to be betrayed at the end. I don't know that that matters uh but is that would you think they're more and also of course with the domesticated animals there's questions about you know we're really treating them well we're keeping them in you know in you know pens and 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 so forth there's all the 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 moral issues around that which don't really arise if we're talking about hunting wild animals so do you think that maybe hunting is less morally at least the killing aspect in hunting is less morally problematic possibly i would say you know, I think there could an argument be made that it maybe is more humane killing animals by hunting them than raising them in these slaughterhouses. I mean, you know, there, there right. could be an argument made, uh, I think, in that regard. So, Bracey, do you feel bad when you kill one of your your pet goats or what? I mean, how do, how do you feel, uh, you know, when you do that? It, well, to me, it's it's uh, I mean, this is not to sound callous, but I've taken the life personally taken the life of many animals in, in my lifespan and that's intentional it's part of of, of the life way that I've, I've embraced and not with pleasure sometimes it's with great chagrin sometimes it's with a great feeling of loss uh the same thing's true even I mean we, we rescue animals uh cats dogs goats even and our donkey is a rescue donkey um And eventually I know that I'm responsible for their end. And even when I know that I'm doing it 
for what I seem to be, I seem, uh, I see as a better end, if you will, whatever ethical framework to work. If you're using a kind of double effect or a proportionality, you know what I'm saying? Um, I'm doing something, but there's a sense of loss. I feel great loss when, whether I put a, one of my dogs down or a cat down. And in most cases, uh, of course, my larger animals, I'm responsible for doing that by my own hand. There's a great feeling of loss. There's a, and this is a thing that some ethicists have kind of posited about the importance of hunting or an effect of hunting. And it is that on the hunter in the taking of life, there is the harsh reality of mortality that is present to them that is completely absent to the majority of the modern population. Killing animals for me is a difficult task. Um, technology helps in some ways by distancing as we move through this. But for instance, as a bow hunter or even as a responsible pet owner in this type of environment, um, it's hard. It's very yeah. hard, particularly if you've saved the life of that animal before. When it was ailing of the life. But it, it, at least if it's an animal like a, a dog or it has to be put down because, you know, it's old or sick or something, uh, there's a kind of necessity uh, attached to that, right? I mean, maybe not 100% because you could just let yeah. the animal die, but it's a, there's a kind of necessity. If you if you shoot a buck or, so, you know, I mean, uh, you're just doing it. Well, I mean, there might be necessity because it's your food, but it also might just be sport. Right. I mean, how does how, so how does it compare? I mean, how do you feel when you if you if you uh, you know, a wild animal, you, you, you kill a buck or something like that. I mean, how, how does that compare to putting down your, you know, your sick dog? Well, uh, let's, I'll just ask Jeremy, if you okay. want to, Jer you just killed a beautiful buck last year. I mean, what came of that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously there's, uh, you know, a sense of, of pride and accomplishment, right? I mean, it was a pretty long shot and all that kind of, uh, you know, but there's, so, I mean, there's a certain skill that's involved in that, right? So, I mean, it's not just, uh, you know, an offhand shot. So there's certainly an amount of human skill, but uh, there's a certain amount of respect, right, for, uh, for the animal as well. Um, and so it's not that... Uh, you know, I, you hate the animal and that's why you shoot it. I mean, that's not why you're, why you're out there, but, uh, but there is a certain sense of pride and accomplishment that, that you've honed certain skills. You've, uh, you, you've put some training in, uh, so to speak, you've gone to the range, you, uh, and so, but the, the kind of referencing back to this idea of, of distancing, right? I mean, that's, um, <clears throat> you know, to, to tie in kind of the, the just war thing. I mean, that's kind of a, big topic now in the military in terms of moral injury right the, the distancing of kills you've got uh you know drone pilots versus like infantrymen right and so the the nature of how they're engaging in the kill uh does affect have long-term psychological emotional uh and spiritual effects on them and so this notion of distancing with, with hunting, I think, is uh, is related to that as well. But I would say, I mean, you know, there's a certain amount of respect, uh, you know, for the animal, but there's also um, <clears throat> a certain amount of, I don't know, pride in a good way. I know pride cometh before the fall, but um, you know, you've especially, you know, depending if you if you've tracked the buck and you you've worked and you've you've scouted the trails and you. Uh, scouted the area and, and this and that. I mean, there's a certain amount of work 
uh, and versus reward, I guess, that comes into it as well. I don't know if I'm articulating that. That's good. Uh, uh, or not. Well, I mean, historically, if we, the idea of pride and success, which we not to be seen as a kind of arrogance, but as a kind of uh, accomplishment of a deed deemed good. If we look historically, this is a natural thing because prior to freezers, if you took that buck, that was more food than you could consume in the time before it would have begun to decompose and go bad. So the solution was, and this has been the case, obviously in most all hunting and gathering societies, is that if you took an animal of that size, then you would naturally have to share. Because other than salting it, smoking it, which then also would have taken, by the way, a number of other human resources to provide salt, which is itself a commodity, but even smoking would have taken time. You're putting that food away for more than one people. In most cases, what we see in hunting and gathering societies, whether it be relatively modern or those, of course, like Paleo-Indians, is that you took life, you did it, and then you brought it back. Many times you did it with a group. But then you brought it back. So there were these intangible um, elements of success, if you will. So you lent yourself in your efforts to not only your continuing existence, but also to the existence of those you cared for, your tribe, your family, et cetera, who would then consume that food generally within you know, a couple of weeks or so before things got too bad. Um, and that process would have constantly continued. So there were always intangibles associated with this. This is in some ways different though than, I think radically different than the, the killing of a domesticated animal. Not only the human relationship to the animal, but the human relationship to the food. If I kill a cow, my intent is I'm going to set it up where, you know, I may have to share, but I can sell it. There's an un, somewhat unpredictable element to, to hunting. You don't know that you're going to get something. And if you do get something, then you've got to deal with this bounty. Sharing has always been a part of hunting cultures by necessity until the freezer. So, you and know, I freezer, think, yeah. yeah, so this point you're making, I think this is something that comes out uh, when when people talk about hunting or and even also fishing. I mean, some of it seems to be that part of the attraction is it feels like you're getting closer to your roots. I mean, not, not your roots, like your, 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 you know, your parents, but your sort of roots in, I mean, your caveman roots is probably overstating it, but there, there's some, there's some uh, feeling of connection to the natural world or something like that. Is that, is that, is that You know, cause this is the way people had to do it before we had freezers. And I know, well, I can, I know that you at least have a feeling, I don't know if it's justified that I could survive, I could make it on my own, you know, if I, if we, if I didn't live in the modern world and could go down to the grocery store or whatever. So is that, is that fair to say that part of, part of the attraction of hunting is this, this feeling of connection with nature or money guys? Yeah. And I think it's, uh, it's perhaps a more honest connection, right? Cause I mean, if you ask the question, where does meat come from? It doesn't come from aisle nine at Walmart, right? But that's in the modern culture in which we live, that's going to be the response from a lot of people. But that's not where meat comes from. The meat just didn't by divine fiat end up in the market, right? So I think in, in, in one way, hunting is, is really a more honest way uh, of, of your food procurement. Uh-huh. 
Well, what about the just uh, like you in the in in uh, Bracey's book, Jeremy? You you have a story you tell about um, you know the things you've gotten out of hunting. Right? I don't remember exactly what the title was, but you go through and you sort of list a number of uh, you know w- things that that hunting has benefited you or ways it's helped you or benefited you or good things you've gotten out of it. What maybe you want to, can you just run through that a little bit and sort of list some of those things or if you remember? Oh, well, I slipped since then. Um, (laughs) uh, What, what faith, food and and family, I think. Um, So, I mean, obviously, I mean, we kind of talked about the food, uh, you know, that's kind of the, uh, you know, you had the story about the matches. That's what I remember about it. You remember the story about the matches? What was that story? The MRE and the, I don't know if that's a profound hunting story, but this buddy of his, this is me and my buddy were hunting and, uh, and it was cold. I mean, it was, you know, it was LA. We were in LA, we were in lower Alabama, but it was cold for lower Alabama. And, uh, we were trying to get, a, uh, we wanted to get a campfire going. And, uh, I was searching and searching and searching for, um, for something to start a fire with and uh you know matches i was about ready to start rubbing the old sticks together you know and uh because we had canned food and stuff but we needed a fire to to, to heat it up and finally i gave up i was going to crack open a can of chili and eat it cold you know and um, i look over there my buddy and he pulls an mre out of his backpack that i had given him you know i don't know whenever a couple weeks ago and i just looked at him and i was like you big dummy and he's like what I was like, well, every MRE has a book of matches in it. Why didn't you tell me you had an MRE? So we, we found, you know, procurement of fire. We were the cavemen and we made fire. So <laughs> I don't know how that relates to hunting. But well, that's, that's, yeah. So to me, I mean, what I thought when I heard that story was that was kind of a camping story. I mean, it, it does, it's not like uh, that's the kind of thing that might happen if you if you were camp. I mean, that's just one of these things when you go out in the wilderness and like, oh, so I, it, it didn't seem directly related to hunting other than that you were out there and you were in, you know, out in the wild or anyway, out in the woods or wherever, and you needed these things. I I'll tell a story here. I got a, a fishing story. Okay. Uh, so this is many years ago. I was with a friend. Uh, we were up in Minnesota in the boundary waters and we had his plan. We were going to go, you know, canoeing and uh, fishing. And we, we planned it for like, we had a week. We we're going to go out in a week and we and we we're going to go out and canoe and everything and then eat. And all that's all we were going to do was just fish and eat and, and, you know, live like, our you know caveman ancestors so the first day and of course we had a um you know this was a one of those old aluminum uh, uh canoes so they're heavy and we're doing the portages and we're going and you know we're going back and forth we got our packs and you know it's it's, it's not that easy and so we're in the you know we're somewhere in the boundary waters and we got we're in our canoe and we got the packs down and we're, we're canoeing and then there's some tr- branches that are like low and so we say okay we got to go through these branches and we so we lean back in the canoes and go to go under the branch under the branch and then as we go underneath in our canoes we hear this snap and all of our fishing rods had been sticking out the back of the uh, outside the back of the canoe and we stop and every single fishing rod was broken so we uh, that was it what were we supposed to do well we had brought the you know we brought the astronaut food or whatever you call it so we you know we wouldn't starve <laughs> but uh, so we sat down we set up camp somewhere and we the first day we ate the astronaut food and then th- after that we were like well, we didn't know what to do because the whole day was planned around, you know, fishing. So we, we went ahead and, and we said we'd go home. We had to go back. And then I, what I remember was um, 
we get we get out of wherever we were and then it starts raining like crazy and it's like pouring and we're trying to so we're going to set up a tent and it's raining and we say eh who wants to camp in the rain we just got in a car and we went to a hotel and that was the way the that was the way the uh the experience ended so when, whenever i uh just so whenever i do have done this sort of i'm can i make it out in the wild i've always had to conclude that no i wouldn't because i i've always messed it up uh but at least in this story kind of like the, the experience for us was the being out in the wilderness and all of that right and it was kind of broadly a camping thing but somehow the point of it was still the fishing so when you took out the fishing there wasn't anything for us to do. I mean, we could look at, we could appreciate nature and we could see, you know, you see the bald eagles and, and it was beautiful, but somehow we were missing this sort of central activity that, uh, that everything else was gathered, was sort of attached to. I don't know if I'm being clear. So it might be that when you're hunting and you're having these experiences with, you know, whatever, with your son or you're having experiences in the cold or, or whatever, those are all sort of, they aren't exactly hunting experiences because they're sort of camping experiences or nature experiences, but they somehow depend on this activity. Uh, otherwise you wouldn't be doing it. I, I don't know. What do you, what do you guys think? Well, I mean, I think that there's, there's something different even about between hunting and fishing, uh, particularly of course as fishing is done today where so much of it is catch and release. Um, in which case, Essentially, fishing is just an exercise in torture. Uh, you're torturing another animal. Where in uh, hunting, there's this expectation that the end is going to be the, the taking of a life. You, you don't catch and release most of the time when you're hunting. Um, and uh, so the culture that emerges or evolves around that behavior, I think, has to be affected by the expectation that you're there to take a life. Now, there are things like skills and shared experiences. They're all a part of that, but it still is going to be affected by you're there to go fishing. And once the fishing was removed, things changed. But for the hunting, I think it's always present unless, you know, you literally couldn't have access to the place that you were going to be hunting. But suppose you suppose your point was to go out there and at the end, you just wanted to take a good picture. So you had a camera, you know, and uh, so you're doing all you're going through all the motions of the hunting and you're out in the wilderness and you, you know, everything's the same, except at the very end of it. If you see the animal, you're just going to take a good picture. I mean, would that wouldn't that uh, wouldn't that same. change the experience? It's yeah, it would. Exactly. And so, I mean, you have this kind of photo hunting or photo safaris. It's not the same because the expectation of hunting is that there is going to be the joy and tragedy potentially it's it's i don't want to say telos but that's its end and that is something's going to die something's going to die and there's not necessarily the idea of death in the process of take i love to take pictures i seriously rabid photographer but it's a completely different there's a sense of capture maybe catch and release, if you will, but it's not the same. Um, and the realization that if I fail to do my task, not only might this animal die, but it might die in a horrific fashion. If I do my task well, I can hopefully bring about a rapid, quote unquote, humane end with little or no fear or terror in this animal, which is actually advantageous to me because of the chemicals that are released and the animal were to fear and feel terror so that I can dispatch, kill the animal 
Um, I can, I'm in a kind of competition, let's be honest, between essentially evolutionary behavior and my skill level. And also that then I have the responsibility of the process that follows the kill. At the, at the least that you've got some affluent character who puts the animal in it and their three, four, 350 rolls it down to the game processor and pays for it to be processed. Or in what I would consider the more responsible person who go ahead and takes the, the time and the energy to go ahead and move through process. Something dies or something has the possibility of dying. And that to me is different than a lot of sport fishing and definitely more than hiking or even uh, photography, wildlife photography. The idea okay, so the death, the death is essential to, to the experience or the encounter with death. Is the kind potentiality of, of it, yeah. yes. I don't know. Did you want to add something there, Jeremy? Well, I was going to say, I mean, you, you're talking about the, these experiences vis-a-vis, you know, just camping versus hunting experiences. And, you know, when I wrote that chapter, my son was not yet of the age to, to go hunting. But I will say, I mean, since, you know, I've started, I'll just raise raise two instances here to, to, to put hunting, I think, in, in a good context. So my, my son and I, before we went on our first hunting trip, right, before we even packed the truck, went to the woods or whatever, right? We went to the range. We went to the range, we zeroed in the rifle and my son asked me, dad, why are we out here for two hours on this range sighting in the rifle? And my response to him was, so we can make an ethical kill. We don't want the animal to suffer unduly. And so it gave me an opportunity to talk, talk to him and teach him that look, yes, we're going to take the life of an animal but there's a right way to do it, there's a wrong way to do it. So then we go to the hunt and we, uh, our first hunt we hunted on, uh, it was a, a military base. And so uh, we had to go for a, you know, the, the military loves their briefing. So we had to go to a, a briefing at like four o'clock in the morning before we could go hunting, uh, you know, because it's just because that's how one likes to do things. And of course, you know, so we sit in there and they're like, okay. Hey, you know, you can do this, you can't do that. And so then they draw the buck tags, right. And only the guy that, you know, gets their name, number drawn, gets to kill a buck, everybody else gets to shoot a doe. And so we're going to the stand and we get to the stand and my son asks, you know, one, dad, what was all that about? Why did we have to get up so early and talk about all that? And why can't I kill the first deer that comes out? So then it gives me an opportunity to talk to him about conservation and the greater good. You only kill so many bucks because you want to keep the population in check, right? So now here's another instance, right? A deer is going to give his or her life, right? But in essence, for a larger good, for the conservation of the herd. And so it gave me an opportunity to talk to him again about killing in an ethical manner, conserving nature, really helping nature by being out there and hunting. So, I mean, those are two instances that you really can't just say, well, those are just camping experiences. Yeah. Those are very fundamentally tied to the, 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 the activity of, of hunting. Yeah. Let's think about the, the biblical passages. So the, the, the famous, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, Bracey will have something to say about this. The most famous, or I don't know, that seems like the most relevant passages in the Bible that somehow relate to hunting or at least killing animals are these passages in Genesis 9 or, you know, the, the two account, the count in Genesis 1 and Genesis 9. So we might just take a quick look at that. But I don't know, Bracey, did you want to maybe have some, say something about the the biblical, what, what, what kind of resources do we find in the Bible for thinking about, about hunting or killing I mean, sure, animals? Sure. Yeah. Um, so as we look at um, the biblical account, what we find is that 
not surprisingly, from a bunch of pastoralists and domesticators, there's very limited information explicitly about hunters. There's only a handful of characters who are explicitly called hunters, and we find them in, in Genesis. Um, and, and I know you're going to throw David at me in a minute, so I'll address David in a second, or if even Samson. But uh, the major characters that we see that are explicitly designated as hunters are the character Nimrod in chapter 10 of Genesis. And then, of course, the character of Esau um, set in juxtaposition to his brother, Jacob. So these two characters are explicitly described as hunters. Um, there's a chapter in the book by a fellow by the name Kenneth Bass, and he explores this. And I mean, this has been talked about in some ways, particularly in Jewish circles, uh, even in the 1970s and 1980s, or several articles looking at, you know, what had the rabbis taught us about this, et cetera. Rabbis, by the way, who are always sitting in urban environments uh, discussing this. Uh, but what we find in the Hebrew Bible is, and I'm going to use Bass's analysis here, is a few references explicitly regarding hunters. And they're in narratives, like, for instance, the Jacob Esau narrative, which gives us a whole lot of information that you kind of have to un unpack uh, regarding values uh, and where they're valued. The Nimrod character is ambiguous and has been variously interpreted throughout the Christian tradition and the Hebrew tradition, Jewish tradition, but particularly the Christian tradition, even into the present time. So he's this malleable character who is explicitly described as a hunter, not just a hunter, but a mighty hunter, and not just a mighty hunter, but a mighty hunter before Yahweh. Uh, and it's proverbial, like, like you've heard, it says, you know, he's a mighty hunter before Yahweh. So we don't have a lot there. We do have, of course, relationships to animals throughout the Hebrew Bible uh, and into the New Testament. Jesus refers to the sparrows, right? Sparrow doesn't fall that my father doesn't know. And the only reason a sparrow falls is not because it got old and fell sick. It was because it was routinely netted and trapped and sold in the market as cheap meat. So God doesn't stop animals being hunted and killed. He knows that they happen. And it happens as part of the process of market hunters taking animals. Jewish tradition uh, really doesn't have much reference to the taking of animals by way of bow, arrow, uh, lance, spear, etc. Um, it's almost extensively trapping the use of walls or kites. You use uh, the use of nets, of pits. Um, so... Well, some would say, well, that's not hunting. That's hunting. I mean, you're tracking an animal, you're placing a trap in a particular way. And when we look at the references uh, regarding the traps and nets and snares, what we routinely find in the Hebrew canon is this idea of pulling at a kind of, I don't say empathy, but generally you're playing at the tragedy of a person being caught or in their own trap, ooh, even more ironically. Uh, but the greatest hunter and the greatest trapper in the entire Hebrew canon is not Esau and it's not Nimrod. The person who does it the most and is referenced the most is the person of the deity, Yahweh. Yahweh is the great hunter. He's constantly hunting, seeking after Israel, trying to catch her. And so the Yahweh character, if we look at it throughout the Hebrew canon, is the most common, the most referenced of hunters. But if you I just, yeah, that's I hadn't thought of that idea that Yahweh is the hunter. I was I th so the um uh 
the, the other stuff here. So you sound like you were summarizing it. The hunting is sort of there in the background, right? Obviously, you, know, you can tell in the in biblical world because you find these references or metaphors and so forth, right? So that seemed to be one thing you were saying. You know, obviously, they know about hunting. And the other thing, you, and you seem to say, suggest that the Bible is a little biased because a lot of the hunters, you know, it's an urban, they're urban and like Esau. I mean, Esau is kind of not a, you know, it's kind of a dope and and he's a hunter i mean that's what he's famous for is he like to hunt and he's obviously obviously not the sharpest candle in the in the box or crayon in the box so or so, but that's only our evaluation if we deem him to be someone who makes unwise choices the other way to look at it is that esau has a particular framework of values that do not match that of the tent dwelling along with the women jacob so I think that I mean that's so another way to okay this is obviously just back and forth here but I mean if if a hunter today right I mean is probably not like the kind of hunter Esau was to me it's very plausible to think that in the uh, you know whenever we're, where the story takes place Jacob and Esau that the people who were into hunting were you know weren't we're, we're just kind of like not as sophisticated as you guys but just sort of you know dopey people who like to hunt and then the smart people were the ones that's writing the Bible. Or, you know, Jacob. And, and, and uh, so I, I don't know if there anything matters uh, there in this, but um, I mean, it may not just be bias. It could just be that 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 might accurately describe the what hunters were like back then. I don't know. Well, let's take it for a minute, though. Who wanted that wild meat? <laughs> Who wanted the idea? Yeah, OK. Well, yeah. It was Isaac, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Isaac, big dog in the Hebrew canon, one of the patriarchs. He had a taste for wild. Well, he's meat. also a little dopey too because he got tricked, right? So, <laughs> okay, so I okay, don't know. So here's here's something to think about. Yeah. The story of Jacob and Esau. This is just me. Is about two hunters. Think about it for a minute. How does a hunter get close to the game? He takes on, she takes on some form of deceptive clothing, camouflage wearing of uh, uh you've seen the pictures of, of native americans on the plains before the horses right they disguise themselves in buffalo robes to be able to get close to the buffalo to release their arrow so not the frederick remington bronze on horseback shooting an arrow jacob puts on furry clothes of something so that he feels like his brother who is hairy and red and He's 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 ruddy, whatever that means, I guess, you know, um, and you have Jacob who goes deceptively in camouflage, providing something to his father who then bites, if you will. Now we can roll into fishing and is tricked into becoming the prey. What's the prey? Isaac and the blessing. And Jacob is an urban hunter more than happy to do all the same things that his brother does against animals, Jacob does it against other humans. And he's the hero. He's a liar. He's a cheat. He's a trickster. He may be effeminate in some regards. He's depicted here with this kind of masculine, feminine kind of gender roles. If you think of it that way, it's a crazy story. And he's so okay. He's not, he's not perfect either. Uh, he's just uh, shrewd. Well, all right. So, okay. This, uh, all right. So, well, let, let's at least look at, okay. So I, I can think about it. And this, I, this image of God or Yahweh as a hunter is not one I've thought of before. So I have to think about that. That's something for me to think about. Um, but let's at least look at this, uh, the, the, 
the account in Genesis, right? So um, this is a, something that many people make it's common. So if you if you read uh, sort of the first account, the account of creation, Genesis one, right? Uh, you know, God says to man and woman or Adam and Eve that they are supposed to have dominion over the earth, fill the earth, subdue it, they have dominion. But you get the impression that they're only going to eat uh, plants and even the animals, right? So the at least that's the impression. If I look at it, uh, I'm in Genesis 1:29, and God said, "Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, and you shall have them for food." And He says the same thing to the beasts, basically. And then we have Genesis 9, right, where that's after the flood, right? Uh, and so, you know, the flood's over. And uh, this is the same chapter, I think, when we get the, you know, we get the, well, we get the covenant that God makes to Noah. And then we get the same lines about be fruitful and multiply repeated, but there's a, there's a difference now, right? So that um, when he says, when God says this to the human beings, basically in Genesis 9, he says, you know, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So it sounds like Genesis 1. And he says, the fear of you and the dread of you, dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. And upon every bird of the air, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. So now there's some sort of animosity between uh, human beings in the animal world. Uh, and, the, and he says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And, it's, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So it looks like, right, uh, it looks as if, according to the biblical account, humans didn't start eating eating food, or sorry, eating meat until after uh, the flood. Right. And uh, so I don't know. Right. So how, how would you either of you guys, how would you what would you do with this? Jeremy? Well, so I kind of take um, and it, like it's been, it's been a bit since I've looked at this, but Walton, uh, John Walton is a, is a Hebrew scripture scholar. And so, I mean, he mentions that if you look at the Genesis 128, right, uh, versus the, the Genesis nine, right, the subdue and rule of Genesis one is replaced by this fear and dread in, in Genesis 9. Um, so for, for his understanding, this notion of subdue and rule includes some sense of domestication of animals, right? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> there's, there's some domestication of animals. So his, his kind of argument that, that what the progression that we see here is uh, there's a distinction made between meat eaters and being a predator, right? That human beings since Genesis one have eaten meat, domesticated meat, but it's only in Genesis nine that they're introduced now as, as hunters and pursuing animals. So it's not that meat eating is introduced in Genesis nine, but in a different form, now humans are seen as, as predators. And, and, I, and I mean, I, I like the analogy he makes because he's also uh, kind of builds on, if you look at what happens after the fall in Genesis 3, the, the ground is, is more difficult to get food from, right? And so now in Genesis 9, God is saying after the flood, then animals are going to be more difficult uh, to become a source of food and so the blessing is still there there's there's some difficulty and struggle that's introduced with with the ground in genesis 3 and now with the animal kingdom in genesis 9 so the the blessing and the curse or the fall uh, if you will is is still there um so so, so you're yeah, seeing, all that to say is 
So, and that, and the way you're sort of approaching it right now, it's uh, the change really has to do with the, um, uh, I don't know what we, the hostility or the, or the resistance or the conflict between the, the humans and the animal world. So just as the ground now yields its, or after the fall yields its crop with only with labor by the sweat of your brow. And then, so there's a farming becomes hard or more difficult. And so even the relationship between the, with the animal world is, somehow different but it, uh so that's sort of be that's sort of what you're emphasizing there so that's just a feature of the fallenness of the world kind of right and and i think what that reading does though is it helps kind of to uh, uh argue against this notion that somehow vegetarianism is the ideal and meat eating is is a secondary order for human beings but if you look at the, if you, if you read the subdue and rule of Genesis 1 is this notion of domestication and rule, and that what you have is a change from, you know, meat eater to now predator, right? Humans are now predators of animals in the Genesis 9. So it's not that Genesis 9 introduces meat eating to the human race. It's been there all along. Just now humans are seen now as predators to animals. I mean, of course, it's you can't we can't really decide we can't really determine this, right? But if you look at the passage, so I mean, uh, in Genesis one, I mean, uh, you know, I'm looking at it here. I got it up here. It says, "I have given you every plant yielding seed which is upon the face of the earth, and every tree with seed, you shall have them for food." So there's no mention there of eating the animals, and then it says, "Into every beast of the earth." Uh, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. I mean, it looks based on that passage uh, that both the human beings and the animals were vegetarians, right? Because the, uh, I mean, it doesn't say it, it's implied, or it may or may not be implied, but it sounds as if neither the, the, the humans are eating meat, but even the animals are only, are all vegetarians, right? Or I don't well, know. Okay, yeah, so go, let's take, go ahead, Bracey. Yeah. If we take the if we take the narrative and we give it some kind of canonical cohesion, right? Um, and most, I think, everyone's going to agree that Genesis one is a later editorial slap in the front and gives us kind of like a thesis um, for the rest. And then the Genesis two, four, and thereafter is another right, another source, particularly another kind of rendition that's older. That said, we still roll with it canonically. In chapter four, we've got Abel who is a keeper of sheep. And we've got at least one meat consumer already, and that meat consumer is God. Now, I don't know why Abel's keeping sheep. Now, if you tell me he's going to shear them for the sake of building clothes, okay, because they needed clothes, and the first person to kill an animal is God, who gives them furs to cover their private parts, because I guess fig leaves weren't enough. So he moves from vegetation to the taking of presumably a life, so God's the first animal killer. And you're like, well, that's blood atonement. They hadn't killed anybody. Well, so it does seem that there were sacrifices going on. Uh, so that, and presumably animals could have been killed, uh, you know, it, so before Genesis 9, there were sacrifices, right? So well, animals were killed uh, for sacrifice, but they, right. I, I, we infer they weren't killed for food until well, after that's Genesis That's only 9. because you, you've assumed that they were, he said, by the way, every animal, now, but didn't mean that they weren't killing the sheep that Abel was keeping. Was he only raising sheep to kill for Yah for God and to sacrifice well, them? Yeah. And okay. after that, in chapter four, you've got the reference to Ada, who bore Jabel, and Jabel was the ancestor of those who lived in tents and livestock. Now, 
doesn't say that he's raising livestock to be killed to his descendants, but you get this implication already that sacrifice is taking place. Nobody's killed anybody yet. Cain's going to do that, but we already have sacrifice to God. We've got animals that are being killed for God. And one kind of has to wonder why those domesticated, to take Jeremy's point, domesticated animals then weren't also foodstuffs. There's no prohibiting right statement that says, and don't eat the animals that you're apparently raising to kill for me. So this is basically built out of, admittedly, you've got a kind of Jewish rabbi tradition that's rolling with this. But again, they're living in cities, et cetera, and they're living off domesticated animals. You're looking at the canonical element. Reason says they're killing animals. Well, okay. So the, the other, also the thing in Genesis nine is when we get that sort of the death penalty, right? Or so, so it seems. It, so presumably, there's been killing. We know there was killing of human beings before, right? But it's only with the uh, at, least, at least the kind of traditional interpretations only with Genesis nine, right? That God authorizes uh, the death penalty as uh, punishment, right? For for murder. So in both of these, you could read these stories as or Genesis nine is God is giving authorization. He's giving authorization uh, for the killing of, uh, of human beings under certain circumstances, and he's giving authorization to the killing of animals uh, uh, for eating. Right. So, so uh, go ahead, Jeremy. You're, go ahead. Not just any type of killing, right? The human is now a predator, right? Pursuing right. it. Well, that's the fear and the dread language. I think is important. Mm-hmm. I yeah, mean, what? Go ahead, Bracey. Yeah. No, I'm going to say, so when you look at the Noahic covenant, which is the first kind of explicit covenant you get here, by the way, notice the symbol is a weapon of war and a weapon of hunting. It's a bow. God uh-huh. could have chosen all anything you wanted, if you will. But in this case, what you've got is a symbol that is an aggressive symbol of warfare and death that God uses. And you go, oh, but it's a rainbow. Well, yeah, it's a rainbow with pretty colors, but it was symbolized. That's what it represented. So you've got God showing after devastation, in some ways, a kind of new relationship between animals and humans. It does not say for the first time you can eat them, but now they're all going to fear you. But good luck, you can eat them all too. Uh, But we're going to make this job of acquisition of meat more difficult than it was previously. Like Jeremy said, the acquisition of foodstuffs. It's not, did they plow and plant in the garden prior to the fall? There's nothing that says otherwise. They're supposed to tend it. It's just now the yield drops off and the task becomes more difficult. Thus, the Noahic Covenant opens it up with a couple of different things. One is the task and the yield will become more difficult. And you've got the death penalty, if you wish, or at least the responsibility for taking another life and it's not just human on human and human on animal, it's animal on animal. So presumably animals are also going to be responsible for the lives that they take, which is intriguing. Um, and not just simply animals that take human life, but animals take other life. But yet we look around and we say, it seems to be a, a kind of predator prey environment. Um, so for me, the so I don't know. I'm actually not convinced of that. But I mean, I it, but it, you could be true. I mean, it could be correct. But for me, it's kind of an odd. The, basically, the impression you get from Genesis one is that the animals themselves were all, all vegetarian. I mean, that, at least that passage, at least it doesn't say they're eating each other, and it says he's God's given them plants. So if if the 
it is sort of, you know, before the fall, this represents sort of the original nature and all the animals are just eating, they're all vegetarians. I mean, it's just hard to imagine if we just look at nature, um, uh, uh, that that's impossible. I mean, there's no way the world that we live in could be one where, where all animals are vegetarians. I mean, they just, they, they, uh, you know, they, they eat each other. So, so um, eat, it's almost as if the Eden, it's kind of a, you know, a vague idealized description of uh, life before the fall, before before the world as we know it today. And it's not clear to me that even if it were correct that uh, animals were vegetarians and humans were vegetarians before the fall, that would mean the program would be to go back, to try to go back to uh, that life like that, because I just, you can't really come up with a realistic program. I mean, you could be, humans could be vegetarians, but we're not going to come up with a program where animals uh, stop hunting each other. Right. So. Right. I mean, dogs can in theory live off a vegetarian diet, but cats can't biologically. A cat can't. I guess um, all the cows are living off of corn now. So maybe we're making progress <laughs> in that direction. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, and so this is, you know, to be honest, I mean, I think this is our problem as we struggle with it is what's the purpose of the story. Right. And to what, what tools do we use to unpack it? The idyllic garden story pre-fall does not make sense. And Genesis 1 does not make sense from what we know from evolutionary history. And just speaking of just animals in general and of animal behavior. And this to me is the challenge um, of the prophetic and the eschatological references that we see, particularly in the Hebrew Bible, the lamb and the lion laying next, next to each other in this kind of peaceable kingdom, uh, if you will, there's a, as a reference for people from Duke, but peaceable kingdom. Um, and it sounds nice, but we have no evidence that it ever existed, nor do we have a model for it other than it's this, again, it's kind of like this eschatological place just as we have it in reverse uh with with the garden and the question is are we called to reclaim that to make that happen or is that something that only exists under uh the power of god at the beginning and the end you know what i'm saying so yeah so, we're living in an in-between stage if you will where we eat animals, we hunt, we apparently raise animals just for the purpose of killing them, which is even more just downright horrible if you think about it. I give, hopefully if I do my job right, as Jeremy was talking about, and I go hunting, the animal I hunt has been free, dealing only with other predators its entire life. And I give it one bad instance that hopefully is over in 60 seconds, if all goes well, versus the animal that has been behind a fence right? Eating all kinds of weird GMO corn or whatever, right? And then is put in a cage, is transported, then taken to an arbitrage, shoved into a, a funnel, and then finally killed. All that fear is elicited. So the question is, what is the ideal? Are we bringing the kingdom of heaven in? Or is the kingdom of heaven something that- Okay, but let's in? ask this question then. Could we, uh, I mean, this is another speculative question, but if, of course, if the lion and the lamb are lying down and- uh, you know, that suggests that, and that's a, that's a description of the kingdom of heaven. And it suggests that there are lions and lambs in, in, in heaven. Right. Uh, or I just, we just had here to you, we had this, a singer come in, he was saying he really liked the passage from revelations where 
you know, all the Jesus or the, you know, on the white horse and all the horses coming, cause that means their horses in heaven and, and so forth. So, I mean, uh, should we think, and then we have this tradition and, you know, even in the Christian tradition, you got people like St. Francis who like, like the animals and so forth, you know, was, uh, so should we think that, um, there are animals in heaven or, I mean, what should we think that animals have, a an, uh, some sort of destiny that's beyond just this. How do we think about that? I, where do what's the status of animals in the overall God's plan? Do all dogs go to heaven? Is that yeah, do all dogs go to heaven? Yeah. <laughs> I, I obviously hope. Uh, well, go ahead. No, no, I, I don't think. I mean, I know you threw it out there, but yeah. I, this is something I think uh, about a lot. Uh, I, we we chose not to have children. And thus, I, I know Jewish rabbis would go crazy about this one. They didn't do pets, if you know. The Jewish tradition does not do pets. Uh, they just don't do pet animals. They have domesticated animals. They eat domesticated animals. But the, the rabbis were kind of like, eh, you should have children. If you don't have children, you shouldn't have pets because give your money to the poor rather than to an animal, uh, which is a kind of interesting approach. But we don't have children and we have pets. And the question is the affection that goes from one species to the next between them is, I think, and of course, we always talk about a man and his dog, but a woman and her dog or their cat. It is, it is, it is something. Um, and I'm going to call it real, whatever it is. And it's a difficult thing to think of heaven in the first place. What the heck is heaven, right? Golden streets and mansions. I remember singing those hymns. But the point is, what is it? If it is a place of fulfillment and a place of uh, knowing, again, our divine in an intimate sense, and if that divine chose to make on the same day as humanity quadrupeds and animals and named them good and then made humans the same day to also be very good, and then chose in the next myth, right? You've got Adam, and Adam then names the vegetables, right? He didn't name vegetables. He didn't name trees. What does he name? The animals. And the intimacy of animals, you could say, well, the naming of something is the control of something. Okay, sure. What about the idea that the naming of something is to bring it into your world? After all, God destined animals to be the helpmate, the fulfillment, the complement with an E, for humans, maybe it didn't work out. I don't know if God didn't know what he was doing, right? He had to go to woman, but animals weren't there to be, a, uh, what do I say? They weren't distant. They were intimate with humans from the get-go, at least in the story. So is there a heaven with animals? What's the old saying? If, there aren't, if they aren't there, I don't want to be there. Um, and I guess my, I'll add here to Bracey's, if, 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 if God is redeeming the entire creation, right, yep. and animals are part of the creation, and we see that the, the effects of sin affect the entire creation, because that's there in Genesis 9, one way or the other, um, then it's certainly not implausible. I mean, it, then if all of creation is being redeemed in some way, then that has to include uh, animals, or it has to include other things other than human beings, and the distance between God and and, you know, a human is not is much, much greater than the difference between God and a dog or sorry, between a human and a dog. Right. And we're measuring different. You know, so if God can redeem humans, I mean, it's just a little bit lower and he's redeeming dogs or, or, or and, I mean, I'm not taking a position on this, but but it would see it would see it would see it would seem that it would seem that, um, you know, 
animals would have to be included in this in this sort of our thought about or the concern for animals would have to be included in our, our thought about uh, uh, God's plans or so so um, uh, that would also affect the way we, we think about animals and think about hunting and so forth. I don't know that that, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't hunt, uh, but it it does suggest that we have to think about you know animals uh, responsibly, which I guess that that's not a controversial position. So. No, and if you think about it, I mean, again, there are arguments that can be made, and they are made, uh, that the taking of an animal life through what we would characterize today as responsible hunting, and that definition is going to ch change depending upon the era which we look back and, and see, uh, that if we, we take that life responsibly, there are quantitative as well as intangible rewards that come in the process of that, that can be seen. I'm going to say virtuous by any means. I don't want to say that, but that can affect the Christian or the soul of anyone in an important fashion. And that then the animal, were it to be consumed by the human, that that act could have more value definitely than you go buying five pounds of chicken breast in, in the restaurant or in the store. Uh, look at the, the, the covenant uh, in Isaiah. It incorporates all of the earth is going to be redeemed. So you have this idea of uh, the breadth of sin and also the breadth of redemption. And it incorporates everything from soil to animals to humans. Yeah. Okay. That's a, we're getting get good. Those are, I think those are good points. Uh, just, I mean, the other thing maybe it, though, is so we look at nature as it, we see it today, you know, it's built a lot, it's built on conflict, right? It's built on animals hunting each other. I mean, there's a lot of conflict uh, and things that are unsettling if you're uh, right. Uh, but that's just the way the world is. That's the, 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 that's the natural world. And then hunting is really kind of part of that uh, and eating animals is part of that. And uh, to some extent, trying to escape from the natural world is, uh, or, or the created world, or however, is kind of, you know, I don't know, sentimental or, or foolish, I guess. Is what, but on the other hand, I mean, it isn't totally foolish that we feel some uh, uh, tension or reservations about uh, these things, because somehow, um, if, if we think that animals are being redeemed or creation is going to be redeemed or these conflicts that we encounter in the natural world will somehow be overcome, then there is something that that isn't it isn't yet perfect or something uh, not ideal about it. And so the the discomfort we feel or the or the reservations are simply a sign that we're aware that there's something better, right? Uh, even if we don't quite have have it figured out. So. You know, may, I mean, this is a kind of a cop out, but maybe it's good if we sort of wring our hands a little bit about hunting and, and worry about it, uh, because there's something that's part of the fallen world or the imperfect world. Uh, but doing that doesn't necessarily mean that we are trying to escape from uh, the natural world or whatever. Anyway, some thoughts. It, 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 so if we look at nature and we say that nature is our source for truth. OK, so let's so we go into kind of a. a you're Aquinas. Aquinas sees hunting as being, it is a reflection of nature. And we, it, the question is, can we see truth in God's plan in nature? If we can't, then why do we even look at it? Well, since he brought up Aquinas. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, Aquinas makes this distinction. And, and again, I'm going off memory here, so apologize. But he makes this distinction between 
providential order and governance of that providence, right? And so, and he also, in his section on evil, he talks about, right, the particularities of evil, uh, and he makes a distinction between moral evil and what we would call, I guess, metaphysical evil, right? Uh, and so, you know, he talks about the, you know, the, the lion eating the lamb. Well, certainly that's an evil for the lamb, right? But it serves the greater providential order um, of creation. So we may not, you know, like all the, the steps of governance, but there's this overarching providential order. Um, and, and I think in, in some sense that we can look at hunting as it, it plugs into this overarching order um, of nature in terms of conservation and things like that. Um, I don't know, just when he brought up Aquinas, it made me start thinking about Providence. Uh, so that, that's kind of what, what came to mind. Okay, good. Well, listen, guys, thanks. Thanks a lot uh, for coming on my podcast. Um, uh, and that was an interesting conversation. So, uh, so thanks. And to all of my listeners, uh, you know, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and uh, I'll see you next time.